Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here, we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. If we can't fix what's wrong, then our grandchildren inherit it. In order to fix what's wrong, we have to talk about it. And we can't move that conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. We have to push on the edge of what it means to connect. Otherwise, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong. I'm here to guide you through a series of radically honest conversations about what it means to be truly human in all of its messy, beautiful, hilarious, and heartbreaking glory. In our collective effort of looking inward, we're starting to do the outward work of reconnecting the world. While these discussions will guide you into the connectfulness practice, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for the depth of work that you'd encounter with a licensed provider. If something in this episode touches you, reach out. That's where you initiate the ripple that restores relationships. You can learn more about my Connectfulness Counseling practice and our collective for therapists in private practice at connectfulness.com. This episode is brought to you by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes is a simple, secure EHR platform for therapists in private practice. It keeps you organized and creates a container for all the details that run your practice so that you can focus on what really matters. Use the promo code CONNECTFULNESS and get two months free when you sign up at therapynotes.com. Welcome back to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking with one of my teachers, Jan Bergstrom, and we're going to be talking about the journey to discover the self, which is the crux of many of our lives. You know, there's this big question that kind of hovers over each of us. How do we know the self? How do you know who you are? As you're going to see from today's conversation, the self exists in relation to your own perceptions, your own thoughts, your own experiences, your own soul. We're going to be talking about what creates a sense of self what protects a sense of self, what gets in the way of developing a sense of self, and what practices help to bring us back to our sense of self. This is definitely one of the focuses of my work these days, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. In this episode, I'm joined by Jan Bergstrom. Jan has been practicing as a counselor and a trainer in the field of codependency, developmental, and relational trauma for 25 years. She studied extensively with Pia Melody, a pioneer in treating childhood trauma. Jan also practices Sue Johnson's Emotionally Focused Therapy and Attachment Model for Communication, as well as Terry Reel's Relational Life Therapy Model for Couples. And she's a somatic experiencing practitioner, which uses a body-oriented approach for healing, a method developed by Peter Levine. Jan says it was her own childhood trauma that set the stage for a lifelong interest in the impact of childhood trauma. It also sparked her passion for healing others. In 2008, Jan created the Healing Trauma Network, 
a directory of therapists offering the work of Pia Melody. In 2015, with Dr. Rick Butts, she created the Healing Our Core Issues Institute, dedicated to teaching therapists a methodology for healing childhood trauma, training practitioners in a developmental and a relational trauma model, an integration of Pia Melody's post-induction therapy, along with other attachment mindfulness and body-based techniques. And based on this framework created by Pia Melody, Jan recently published the book, Gifts from a Challenging Childhood, Creating a Practice for Becoming Your Healthiest Self. Jan resides in the Boston area with her husband of 30 years. She's the mother of two adult sons, a therapist and a guide to others. She lives a restorative practice and reaps its many benefits and gifts in her own life. And I should definitely add that Jan is also one of my teachers. Without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome back. I'm here today with Jan Bergstrom, one of my trainers, and I am so excited to keep learning with you, Jan. So I'm grateful that I can share you and your wisdom here with my audience. Thank you so much for having me uh, be a, a guest on your podcast. Many people re- well regard what you're doing, so it's exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. You know, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you here today was to talk about this journey that I think everyone is on to discovering the self, the self with a capital S, as you say, mm-hmm. because I think this is one of those kind of mysterious things. It, it seems like it should be so easy, but it's really the crux of many of our lives. Yes. You know, and, and <laughs> I remember when I first started studying with Pia, which was about 2003, and I remember her talking about the self with a capital S. I was like, huh. I've never really thought about that. I've never really heard about that at all. And uh, when she started talking about it and saying that it's what it was, I, and it is, it has a spiritual component, I remember being blown away. And the first thing I asked her is, well, then how do you find the self? <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't even know myself. And this was like, you know, 17 years ago. And, and I, you know, I was, gosh, I don't even know how old I was in my fifties then. And I'm thinking, I don't even know what she's talking about. So for people who are listening to this, who are younger than 50 and they're starting to be interested in the self and creating and knowing the self, this is a great, uh, this is a great conversation to have. And it's great even over 50. You know, I, I have many clients <laughs> right. in my practice well, who are still... Well, I'm over 50 now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my husband is as well. And I have many clients in my practice who are um, still, no matter what their age, searching for themselves, mm-hmm. trying to figure out who that self is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read something that you write in your book, Gifts from a Challenging Childhood. You write... Yourself is not something that exists only in terms of your relationships to others or to things. Self is something that exists in relation to your own perceptions, your own thoughts, your own experiences, and your own soul. Right. Can you expound on that for us? Yeah. So, you know, that's something I remember when I was studying to become a therapist, you know, they always talked about nature, nurture, nature, nurture. And I used to think it's, it's really both. And, and so there's the the nurturing or of course the field that i'm studying in is is lack of nurturing uh for people growing up with um childhood trauma but for me it's um when i think of uh nature it has something to do with our dna and who we are as yeah. as a creature 
but it also has to do as a human being. It also has to do with when we're growing up in a family system and we're having our experiences of our life, the filter in which they're all coming in, uh, my sensation, I'm taking information through my senses, and then I'm creating meaning about it and I'm creating that um, emotions that come from that and they in turn up end up being me who I am uniquely and that is something that I think is the biggest topic because what happens is in a family system when kids are growing up very very young it's really up to the parent to be reaching in and helping kids navigate what is their reality and that's never usually happens it's usually parents trying to make their kids become what they need them to be so that they're comfortable. Hmm. And so when I get that message as a little girl growing up in a family, I, 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 am, I am really open to what my parents want me to be. And I am trying to do that so that I will be good and perfect rather than them reaching into me. And really saying, Jan, what is going on with you? What emotions is that? And what is that experience for you? And what do you think about that? And I think that rarely happens, which is really unfortunate. And that is that process of reaching in and honoring that your child as they grow up has a sense of self that's different and unique from the parent is what we're talking about. Yeah. And I, I think... I'm sure we're going to cover all of this, but there are five core issues that Pia teaches and that you talk about. Um, and this is all part of getting back to that yes. journey back to the self. And as you're talking, I'm already thinking about some of those core issues because I'm thinking about the child who is so porous. There's The child is born into the world without boundaries. Exactly. And so I wonder if maybe that's a, an important place also for us to begin is just a little description of what boundaries are. Sure. Um, part of what I do when I work with uh, any consultation groups and doing some training is the five core areas that PM Melody outlined back 40 some years ago are essential for creating a sense of self. And I remember when I asked Pia that question, I said, self, what is self? She said, Jan, how your self is created is by using a boundary, a protective boundary that filters out what is true or not true for you. And when you're doing that, you're creating your sense of who you are. And I remember I thought, oh my gosh, that is so simple, yet so true. And in those five core issues, the first one, of course, as you know, uh, Rebecca, is self-esteem or loving the self. So if I'm truly loving myself, the second core issue, of course, is protecting the self. And so that has to do with boundaries. And, and um, I'm just going to do a little bit of information on boundaries. Is Please. Ba yes. Boundaries have three. There's three different kinds of boundaries. There's the external boundary that has to do with my property and people sitting near me or at a party, how close someone gets. That's an external boundary or my purse, or my computer, someone getting into my computer without asking for permission. So I have external boundaries. I also have what we call sexual boundaries. And sexual boundaries are essential for parents to be teaching kids about who touches them, who holds them, how they hold them, where they take them, 
what they're doing with them. And we all have a right to say who touches me when they touch me or saying no. So that's the two boundaries. Now, this area of boundaries, and by the way, Rebecca, I had in the, let's see, I think it was probably maybe 15 or 18 years I'd been in practice. And I have heard so much about boundaries in my first 18 years of practice. When I found out about internal boundaries, the third kind from Pia, I thought, I've never heard of this before. And out of all the books that I think that are written on boundaries, no one really specifically really outlines it and talks about it like she does. And also Terry Real does too. Yeah. He's, he's used a lot of this in his own work w- with couples. Which he's also borrowed from Pia's work. Yes, he did. So, and, yes. And he, he gives her credit for yes. it. Yes. So, but the internal boundaries, which is the third area of boundaries, has two parts. Mm-hmm. And the two parts are the protective or what we call the listening boundary. And then there is the containing part, which is containing me, or I call it my speaking boundary. And that's what Pia talks about over and over again. And when a child is growing up in a family, they don't have boundaries, like you said. They don't. They don't even know what boundaries are. They get taught about boundaries by watching their parents and how their parents are with them. One of the questions that some of my clients have posed to me as I've started to teach them about boundaries and have these conversations is even just like how to discern what to keep outside that boundary or what to hold in. The discernment process mm-hmm. is part of what needs to be taught. And it's what I end up teaching as a therapist, but it's also, I think, one of the things that when we look back to childhood is probably not taught. Oh, gosh, no. See, that's where it's really tricky. Yeah. Because the third core issue is reality or knowing myself or having a sense of self. And if my parents aren't helping me with that when I'm growing up and I learn that I have to be good and perfect and I have to be what they need me to be, I am not going to have a sense of self. I mean, this is why Pia's work started out with codependency, this whole idea that there is no sense of self. I'm just really always wide open with my protective boundary. I'm looking out of me, trying to fix and take care of everybody out of me, and I don't have a sense of self. I want to just kind of point out that um, it started around codependency, and that term has kind of shifted a little bit over the yeah. years, right? It's yes. now being called something else. It's, it's uh, called childhood uh, trauma and relational trauma. Childhood and relational trauma is really yeah. what we're talking about now. She called it codependence. You know, there was actually a DSM code for that. You know, they used to take people inpatient for codependency recovery. (laughs) And now that doesn't exist. It's really, like I said, childhood and developmental trauma. So it's from my childhood. And in those relationships, it creates trauma. And, you know, I have to say, and I'm going to slow down a bit, is the word trauma. Everybody says to me, I don't have any trauma. And the word trauma has really expanded too. Yeah. It's expanded to the, the capacity that it's not just someone abusing me or being beaten or, or hit or raped or emotionally exploding at me and screaming. That is not just the only kind of trauma. Trauma has broadened. The definition it has, drawn, has broadened to neglect, pervasive neglect. And actually, this is in my book where you yes. take a questionnaire and it comes out with how much abuse and pervasive neglect you got. And, and there's also abuse. So there's abuse, which is overt, someone slapping you, yelling at you. 
And then there's covert neglect, which is considered trauma, which is what you did not get as a child. And it gets really, really nuanced in here because it's not just about like you didn't get food or shelter or clothing. It's more um, in the other four areas that I talk about. So when um, I talk about this in the book, too, that there's 11 areas of of needs, you know, food, shelter, clothing, dental care, medical care, you know, those are really important education. But the the neglect that most of my clients have, Mm -hmm. which they don't know they have it, all they know is they come in and they're severely depressed and they feel like their life is really dead, is when you have that kind of neglect, it's what you didn't get. And when you don't get things like emotional nurturing, you don't get guidance, someone reaching into you, asking you, helping you navigate your emotions. You don't get physical nurturing. You don't get um, any kind of spiritual nurturing or any kinds of conversations about that. These are these invisible things that are not seen. And that's where a lot of people do not get, where they get, we call it trauma because it's, it's neglect. And now with this expansive definition of trauma, would you say that most people are traumatized? I would say yes. <laughs> I remember this other thing that's so funny is I remember when I was with, first starting with Harry Real, because I worked with him for like six years, and I remember him saying, hey, read Pia Melody's book, uh, Facing Codependence. And I'm like, I'm not a codependent. You know? And so I started reading the book, and I started reading it, and then I finished it. I went to Terry, and I said, Terry, this, this book says that everybody is like this. <laughs> Like everybody's got codependency or what we're calling now uh, childhood developmental trauma. And he laughed and he said, that's right. (laughs) I think there was another term I also saw you use in the book, which might have been about relational immaturity. Yes. Uh, Well, Pia calls it developmental immaturity. Mm -hmm. Or I, you know, I call it, that's one of her charts that she talks about is developmental immaturity in these five areas. So when I'm in my family system and I'm raised, I am immature or I never develop in the areas of valuing myself. Because you were never taught that. Well, my parents or the circumstances of my life, I wasn't valued. Right. 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 And I didn't develop or mature in the areas of my own valuing because it wasn't given to me by my parents. That's one of the parents' primary... um, uh, goals, uh, goals, uh, jobs to do is to value their children. Yeah. Um, and same thing is that if I don't develop and I'm immature in the area of boundaries, so if my parents aren't teaching me about boundaries and really uh, helping me understand them and they're practicing them, I am going to be not protected. I'm not, I'm not going to develop in my area when I grow up to be an adult to know what boundaries are, what they do, right? Right. And then that's going to show up in all your other relationships as you become an adult. <laughs> Becomes a nightmare. Yeah. And so, so we talked about the first three of these core issues. There's, mm-hmm. there's a few more. Two more, um, right. Yeah. So the third core issue is, again, what we were talking about is this area where parents need to reach into their children and bring them to life, mm-hmm. um, which I love that phrase. It's from a colleague of mine, Carol Weed. And she says, you know, no one brought you to life, which I love that. That's mm. a great metaphor. It's wonderful. Yeah. And, um, and then the fourth core issue is, so again, they all are like, they work together. They're all like a hand in glove. It's, I know myself and I value myself. And then when I do that, I use boundaries. And through the use of boundaries, I learn about 
who I am and I know myself. And once I know myself, hey, I'm going to figure out the fourth core issue, which is self-care, how to take care of myself, and what are my needs and wants, and how do I do get my needs and wants interdependently with others. So that has to all to do with uh, whether I can say this is what I need and how I start asking for it. Because many kids get raised where parents, if they're neglecting them, don't ask them what they need and want. Right. And kids learn how to either do it themselves or become what we call needless and wantless. So that sets up this whole thing that the fourth core issue is all about now. I value myself. I have boundaries. I have a sense of self. I get to ask about what I need and want and take care of myself. And that is just a lovely way of living life. It's wonderful. Yeah. And then the last one is about moderation. moderation. Yes. And so uh, Pia talks about moderation as this area where we're all trying, and and this is what I think, Rebecca, is interesting about these five core areas, Mm -hmm. is that they're they're really um, designed to be, and I want to say bipolar, but designed to be, they're polar opposites. So in self-esteem, it's your either one up, or grandiose, or you're one down and you're uh, shame mm-hmm. based. You're you feel shameful. Okay, so the two extremes of of the core issue, self esteem or valuing yourself, are grandiosity and shame. And what we're trying to do with all of this work is come to the middle, is find that middle place and be in what we call the same as position. So the fifth core issue, which is moderation which is either the extreme of you're either too um, uh, immoderate and, and Pia, I'm going to give her credit for this, talks about being a shit ass. And so you have no containment. And when you're around people, you're just really uncontained or she calls a shit ass or you're a tight ass and you're really shut down and you're really rigid. And so when she talks about these two extremes, we're all in this continuum somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and in different relationships and exactly. different parts of that. Yes. But what she keeps talking about in all these five core areas is that we're really trying to fly in the middle of all of them. And that's the tricky part because we don't really know that where that is because of our childhood developmental trauma. I'm thinking about a healthy childhood and um, how so much of Childhood is about kind of bouncing up against those edges, bouncing up against those boundaries, and then being guided back towards the middle. And that's what we're saying is missing here in in the developmental process, that that guidance back into the middle is what's been missing and Mm -hmm. why we're struggling so much to find it again. Right. It's kind of like the metaphor. I I don't know if you know this about me, but um, when I was very young, in my early 20s, I was a flight attendant. And, um, and so if you use the metaphor of flying a plane, mm-hmm. those, those pilots that get in the plane, they don't, they have an idea. Yes, I'm going to San Francisco, but they don't have a clear map that gets them there. What they do is there are these, what I found out, this is what I found out from being in the industry is they have these radar to- towers all throughout where what they're doing is they're sending a signal down and they're figuring out, Oh, I'm off course. Okay. We've gone to North and we need to come back and correct. And then they keep flying and then they send another signal down and, oh, we just went south too much. So now we have to bring it back and be on course. And that's what parents are supposed to be doing to their children. 
But the problem is parents are human yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they and get imperfect. tired and imperfect and they get angry and they get, and also I have to say parents don't do their own work and some mm-hmm. of them are very untreated. And then what they do is they pass on a lot of their own damage to their children. Yeah. Yeah. That happens a lot. I was just thinking as you were sharing your story about being a flight attendant, um, (laughs) I was a wilderness instructor for in my 20s. And it was similar in terms of how we would teach our students to navigate through through the woods, through the wilderness, through everywhere we were, we would teach them about guardrails. Well, what would you come up to if you went too far this way? What would you come up to if you went too far that way? It would it was all about kind of starting to learn a little bit of right. what would the edges look like. And right. then you can re-navigate your way back into center. Right. And that's really the five core areas. Yeah. We're all trying to navigate staying in the middle and and we need a guide to help us figure mm-hmm. out where, you know, to, to recalibrate. And I use that word in my book. Yeah. We're all, all of our thermostats are busted. And so we're learning how to recalibrate what it is to be either in valuing the self, not one up or one down and learning what healthy boundaries are. So, so this is why when I, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if, um, when I named my book, I was struggling so much with the title of it. And I finally came up with creating a practice for becoming your healthiest self. Yeah, because that's what it is. That's what it is. It's nothing you have. It's something that you're doing. Yeah, and it's an ongoing practice. I know we've talked about this. You've shared this a lot in trainings, but that it's a lifetime practice. It's Mm -hmm. not like you, you know, go to a few sessions and learn it and you're done. You keep working on this throughout the duration. It's like brushing your teeth. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's like eating, you know, it it becomes, it's part of your internal self-care. It's part of Mm -hmm. taking care of your soul. Yeah. Uh, So you you talk a lot about the soul. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an important piece for us to kind of come back to um, because I think it also connects to what Pia talks about is that preciousness and, and that um, inherent sense of self-worth. Mm-hmm. And um, this may be one of the places where a lot of people have the most trouble yes. um, in terms of accessing and, and yes. learning even what that, what that looks like. And I think we're, we're mostly talking about self-esteem here, but self-esteem um, and Reality. Um, reality. Yeah. It is my reality. That's my sense of self. And what I remember when I was listening to Pia and she was talking about this idea that we're all a we're all a speck of the divine presence of she said God, she believes in God. Some people believe the great divine. Um, some people call it their higher power. In chapter 13 in my book, I I try to help people say it doesn't have to be this God thing that everybody learned when they were growing up. It's, it's uh, being a slice or a, a piece of the divine presence of the world is, is an amazing thing that it makes us realize that I believe that we're finite creatures, human on, on this planet, but that we're a piece of something greater than ourselves. And to me personally, and I know people don't share that, uh, that that helps me realize that um, when I'm struggling and I'm trying to figure out where that center is, is that if I breathe and relax and really um, go inward, that somehow my soul will recalibrate and find itself. Mm. So I, do, I really talk a lot about that. Yeah, you do. And I love that you do. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and and for people who are atheists, I always say, do you believe in a, a divine 
and, and a higher presence or a, a higher purpose in the world. And some people can get behind that. There's a higher yeah. purpose. And so that's where I start, you know, with them. I sometimes also like to think about it like the a higher power is like what we give our power to, mm-hmm. right? And so it it could just be a more functional sense of self, mm-hmm. right? It it could be that it it could exactly. be yeah. In fact, um, I do talk about um, in my book the adaptive states, mm-hmm. adapt- and I call them adaptive ego states. And I had a teacher once who's passed away um, years ago who used to talk about. And, and Pia talks about the ego too. The ego wants what it wants. You know, ego is, is like a borrowed identity that we yeah. all kind of got when we were growing up. And those are those adaptive, I'm going to borrow these because I have to adapt in my family. But those adaptive states, when they're given up, or I call it reappropriated to a divine soul or, or presence, what is given is an experience of grace. And I, I think that that is a process that goes on all the time and people really don't know about it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I, I think it's like where it's where the magic lives. Yes. The magic. Yeah. I like that yeah. too. <laughs> the magic lives. Yeah. You, I want to bring us back to the book a little bit. And one of the things you talk about is, um, the need for tracking things, the need for looking back and looking at a timeline of events. And there, there's, um, there's some particular words that you used here that really caught my attention. You talk about uncovering the roots. Um, you say that tracking these significant events in a timeline is essential for uncovering the roots of our emotional responses and our reactions to the stressors and surprises that life brings us. Um, that that uncovering process is part of the healing. Yes. Yeah. In fact, you know, Rebecca, that's interesting. You know, as I teach, uh, uh, you know, other therapists, this whole, uh, whole model, um, you know, there's many pieces. There's yeah. the, the tracking piece, or we call it getting your story straight. Uh, Pia calls it debriefing. Rearranging the furniture, I think, Rearrang- is another way you've yes. termed it. <laughs> um, and then there's also this work, which I call reparenting um, yeah. these different ego states or historical states. And then there's also standing your truth, which Pia calls, you know, feeling reduction, which has, it's an, it's actually an old gestalt model comes from a gestalt. Um, so it's, it's an empty chair work, but this tracking piece, which is interesting, getting your story straight. There are some clients in my practice who I've been practicing now for 25 years who have never done parts work or feelings reduction. Yeah. They just stayed really honoring their um their story and getting the story straight now this is where it's really important because most people come in and say i've already done all that stuff i already know that but it's done in a way where you really reach into someone and you give them the the validation the affirmation and um and teach them about what's functional and they really finally get to be seen and get really clear that it was not their fault. Most kids grow up thinking it was my fault. And, and I think that there's a really um, intense piece of work in this that's very nuanced because when we're looking at our own lives, when we're looking backwards at our own histories, we're looking at them with the lens that we look at the world with, which is the same lens that is created as our sense of self is developing based on the things that we didn't get or the things that we got too much of. Mm -hmm. And so when we have these other eyes kind of seeing us and validating us and doing this work with us, Mm -hmm. it 
helps other things to emerge. Right. I've, I've had, uh, I, I'm thinking specifically of a gentleman who actually is finally doing the uh, family of origin intensive with me next weekend. Um, but he came into me about a year ago and he grew up in a family where he had a brother that was mentally um, handicapped. He was violent. He was out of control. Parents didn't know how to manage him. And he ran the whole household. Like he, the, the child became the household mm-hmm. and he uh, turned into being high, high anxiety, hardly antisocial. He can hardly reach out to people. And when I reached in and I really talked to him about what he should have gotten in a functional family, what his parents didn't do about setting limits and really taking that son out of the family and how the parents didn't protect him, this guy just started sobbing. He was just like being seen and someone knowing his story tracking it and telling him it was never his fault. It changed his life. Yeah. Yeah. It, this is transformational work. I know. I, I know for my own process that it's, um, it's a process I'm still very much in. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's transforming. Um, I can speak personally here. Um, me as a professional, but also it's transforming all of my relationships, mm-hmm. my relationship with my partner, my relationship with my children, my relationship with colleagues, my relationship with my mother and with my sister, like all of those relationships get transformed um, just from, just from this part of the work. Exactly. And yeah. like I said, each part of the work, <laughs> the, the, you know, and I, I talk about that. It's, it's this idea of grounding in your body. It's this idea of mindfulness and then it's the five core areas that yeah. we covered. And now we're talking about this area of uh, getting your story straight or tracking what happened to you and having someone really talk back to you about seeing your experience and validating you and affirming you. And that is very powerful. So all of these different things, I think, are very uh, powerful when used. <laughs> so Incredibly powerful, especially mm-hmm. when they're... When and that's the part of this is that for many of us, we didn't necessarily receive these things in our childhoods. Mm-hmm. Most of us haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, most of us who are raising children might not even be fully able to be present in those ways with our own children. Right. Um, and many of our parents certainly didn't receive these things. But in this therapeutic process, we're given a new opportunity to see it anew and to, to do the work differently. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think this is also kind of one of the um, one of the really important things, and, and you write about this also. You say that in a functional system, that parents also know that they're imperfect, right? Correct, and that they know that they're accountable for their actions, and that they'll make mistakes, and that when they do, they'll make amends to anyone that they've harmed, <laughs> right? And so I think that this is so interesting because this is one of those places where. Um, I find that the work kind of dances a little bit that as we start doing this work, we start seeing ourselves anew too. And it's hard to sometimes hold ourselves in all of those imperfections. Right. And it starts to ripple a little bit. You start to want to go deeper. You start to want to heal more. You start to want to, um, I know I've started to see in myself, um, where I get grandiose and where I get more shame filled and, mm-hmm. you know, like how I navigate all of that and how I can come back to center. But so much of that coming back to center means being accountable for yes. myself. Yes. yes. 
Well, we're back to the analogy of flying a plane, you know, coming yeah. back to center or you're railing when you were teaching, you know, mm-hmm. outdoor uh, you know, education, yeah. education. So, uh, yeah. And so we're talking about this whole area of accountability, which is it's so essential. And see, that's see this when you start on this journey, though, mm-hmm. there's no guarantees that your parents, because we're looking at your family of origin, will ever get accountable for no. their actions. I have to say that it's like a warning for people. I think it's, it's different, though, when you're currently parenting children. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but for us who've grown up and our parents are, you know, it's gone. Our opportunity is over. Um, I am not going to go back to my mother and talk to her and have her say, you know, Jan, you're right. I was so boundaryless and I was so nasty to you. I am so sorry. That's just may not happen. We could wait. Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> it does. No, but I tell people a warning, do not go back to your parents and tell them what you, that now what you're learning, because most of the time, if they're untreated, and I'm talking about mm-hmm. that, Rebecca. They will get defensive. They'll get, they'll feel shame. They'll get defensive and they'll, you know, like shut down or, or get um, angry with you. But this is different. Like you're talking about accountability with parents. And, and actually when anyone comes into an intensive with me, the first thing they start doing is they go, Oh no, I've just ruined my children. I'm like, okay, okay. You got to focus on yourself first. We'll deal with your children later. But really for this work as a parent and you have young children, my children are all grown up. It's really about accountability. And for me, owning my imperfections and being in my practice. So when I screw up and I yell at them or I forget something or I make a big mess, I can, with my own ability to bring myself to center, get accountable for my impact on my, my sons or your children and that is like putting a, and you know, salve on an, on a cut, open wound. Yeah, it's everything. It, it's everything because kids are longing for parents to show up and say, "I'm sorry, I made a mistake here. I really apologize." Most parents don't do that. Yeah, I have a lot of um, clients in my practice who are over the age of fifty, and many who have grown children. And some of them, as they start doing this work, mm-hmm. will turn and will say things to me like, "I can still make amends with my kids." Yes, yes. Yeah. In fact, I do. My my son's twenty eight and twenty four, and I still have. <laughs> my oldest son goes, "Mom, remember that time when you're really angry with me and you, you yelled at me and you threw me into the crib." I looked at him. I was like horrified. And it was true. And I was when I was a young mother, I was really out of control mm-hmm. sometimes. And I think parenting is probably one of the hardest jobs to do out of everything I've done in my life. Parenting was the hardest. Yeah. And I said to him, you know, even with tears, in my eyes saying, you know, I was so out of control and I am so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that heals them, you know, for them to see that they didn't deserve that. That's where the shame goes. When right. a parent doesn't own it, the shame goes to that child and the child thinks, I am a problem. I'm defective. Because so. as we go back to this post-induction therapy model, as we start talking about this, that's the work. We go through all this work of reorganizing the furniture, of getting the story straight, of looking underneath the roots. And then we go into learning the skills of how to come back to center, of how to do this reparenting work for yourself. But then that last phase has a lot to do with this piece that you're talking about, which is, this isn't mine to hold on to. Right. 
Right. That's exactly what it is. So there's that whole piece of uh, when exploring, because if parents aren't accountable when you're growing up, the shame or their criticism or their slapping you or neglecting you, neglect is covert shaming. When a child doesn't get anyone paying attention to them, it's it's really saying you are unworthy. And so when kids carry that around and come into uh, my office, your office, and they're feeling so like they're unworthy and they're worthless and they're defective, it's because of what Pia calls carried shame. And that shame came from parents that were unaccountable and didn't own it. And kids pick it up, carry it around, and they feel like they're walking around with, you know, lead on their shoulders. And so the last piece, right, is what we call feelings reduction or standing in your truth. And what you do, and this is, I think it's it's really a very touching exercise, is that you give back all that energy and the feelings that you're carrying around for your parents to the empty chair, which resembles the picture of your parent. And I've seen people afterwards look like 10 pounds lighter. Their face light lightens up. They're just like so different after they've done it because they feel like, oh, finally, this is no longer something I have energetically in my body. It's, it's gone. So yeah. it's really, it's a powerful exercise. Yeah. And, it, and it's not just the one time, right? Because I know for no. myself, it's been something that I revisit over and over and mm-hmm. over again. It's part of my process that, mm-hmm. you know, something catches me and I have to go sit with that part of me and I have to go reparent that part of me. And then I give back the part that I'm holding that isn't mine. Like I, there's work right. that I'm doing around that constantly. It's not a one day thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's, that's, kind of, uh, you know, we kind of touched on reparenting, but the reparenting piece Mm -hmm. is that these um, historical ego states that we adapted that came from the childhood, they, they come naturally because it's what we need to survive the family system we were in. And so when it's exactly right. So when one of them gets triggered, by the way, they get triggered when you're not using a boundary. So <laughs> when I lose and I go really porous in my bound, my protective boundary, all of a sudden that trigger comes in and that part gets triggered and I go right into my teenager, which she can be very grandiose and very arrogant and very ugly. Um, I then go back in and I look at myself and I say, okay, Jan, now you got to pull yourself down. You got to breathe, and it's in, inappropriate for you to be acting this way. So I set limits with her, and then I go into that. That's the reparenting piece. And sometimes when that part of me is young and feeling less than and and neglected, I I can say I give back the shame that your parents weren't there for you when yeah. you were growing up, because I, as you saw in the back of my book. Um, my parents really struggled for the first very six, five, six, seven years of my life. Um, my mom was very suicidal and very depressed. So that's what I gave back to my mother. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of her depression, her her suicidal ideation, her depression, which I used to carry around a lot and have that same feelings of that. Like, why am I living? Yeah. So it's it's a very powerful exercise. Yeah. I'm so grateful that you're you're teaching this work now. <laughs> uh, um, folks like me get to learn from you because, well, Pia is not teaching it anymore. Correct. And so, you know, it is so important to keep teaching this type of work because it's so transformational. 
I love this work. It changed my life as you can hear me as I'm yeah. talking. Uh, I don't know I'd be where I am today if I hadn't really found uh, Metpia, which was back in 2003. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for many teachers that have come into my life, you included, all in this legacy of, of Pia's. I've never met Pia. I've never trained with her, but I've, yeah. I have many of you who have. Mm, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm grateful for, for just, I mean, I can sit in your presence a lot and just learn from you. So thank you, Jen, <laughs> thank you. for what you're bringing. <laughs> thank you. Do you know yeah. something, Rebecca, I have to say? I feel like I am a channel mm-hmm. when I am speaking. Yeah. Not for me. Like sometimes I don't even like think about myself. It's like something's coming through. And that's when I start getting back into this kind of um, channeling something of healing to people that they need. And it's a, it's a divine presence of something. I don't know what it is. Yeah. You've talked about that in our trainings, but you, you had a way of speaking of that, even while it was happening, you said that was that that zone, that, that's that place that you just went to. It is a, it is a channeling a divine presence and it does feel like um, I'm just teaching and it's it's what needs to be done. And then, and then I have my regular life. I go back to, you know, doing the laundry and washing the dishes. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so it's how it is. Yeah. And I, I think that this is the, one of those pieces though, is that the the divineness of this work kind of enters into us, right? That, that this is, I'd like to maybe spend a few minutes talking about some of these core issues a little bit deeper. Sure. Um, Cause I think some of this is maybe a little hard for some who haven't had exposure to this, who haven't done the trainings like with you that I have and done the other, the workshops. Um, this piece about that we all have this inherent worth, right? You know, yeah, the inherent worth, and I remember every time I say it, it's it's from the inside out. Yeah, it's not from the outside in. That's what we talked about at the very beginning. It's an inside out process. It's it's me being able to hold myself with inherent worth because I am a piece or a fleck of the divine presence of God, or that I have inherent worth because I am just because I'm just because here I on am. the planet because yeah. I am and I'm on this planet. And I have my shortcomings that don't make me less than you. And I have the gifts that were given to me that don't make me better. But that I can hold myself with this inherent worth because I am. And it's an inside out process. And when I make a mistake, I look at it and I say, that's because I'm human. Mm -hmm. My humanity doesn't mean I'm less than or better than. It just means it's defining that I'm human when I make mistakes. Can we go back into childhood for a minute? Sure. And can we talk about what goes what goes awry when that internal sense of self isn't um, nurtured? Yes. So now we're back to sense of self. Yeah. And so if I if I am not going to get valued by my parents, let's say my father's an alcoholic and my mother's depressed, which was the case <laughs> in my family. So they were pretty preoccupied with themselves and. So when that happens, who's around valuing, you know, little Jan when she's growing up? And so what happens for me is that I go and this is, I have a chart in my book too, Rebecca, which I think is really interesting, is where, um, where when trauma happens or things happen in a family of origin, how because of the brain maturing, if the brain isn't fully matured by, they're saying by 24, it's finally myelinated that any kind of trauma that comes in 
is it, it comes in when it's the younger it comes in, the more it affects the child. Right. And so how the child actually um, takes it in is that it's my fault. I'm a problem. Something's wrong with me. So if I'm four, five years old and my parents leave me or forget about me or I'm, uh, you know, shepherded off somewhere to my cousin's house for months, I start feeling like I'm, I am not valued. Nobody cares. I don't matter. And if that happens, that a similar experience happens when you're, say, 16 years old. 16 years old is a little different. Because yeah. Once the brain really starts myelinating around uh, 8, 9, 10, and myelination, I talk about it, is like the nerve endings from the, the limbic system to the mm-hmm. prefrontal cortex, that the nerves start wrapping at a faster pace. So the signal carries much faster in the brain and the prefrontal cortex starts to wake up and it can process. So it has the ability for what I call more adult processing. Like it's more uh, objective. It can look at two things like, oh, there my dad goes again. He's going off to drink. Oh boy, I'm going to go spend some time with my friends and have a good time. Right. I don't feel like I'm so desperate and I'm not valued. I just go, that's about him and I'll just go do my thing. So it's different. And so that value piece uh, really changes um, because of the age of children. Right. And so the younger that the child is, the more of an impact it has on how they see themselves in the world because they're not able to do that differentiation. Yeah. 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 And so one of the things I do say in the book is that when we talk about getting your story straight, I talk about the the age of uh, five. I I really talk between five and 18, um, that if any severe trauma has had happened to anyone from zero to four, mostly it's in their limbic system and it's more uh, probably easier to get at through things like somatic experiencing or, or EMDR or even EMDR may get to it, but then even there's like brain spotting. There's all kinds of new things that really can get at younger trauma Mm -hmm. um, uh, because it's not uh, as easy to get uh, to work with. Yeah. But the stuff that happened between the ages of five and 18 mm-hmm. is more accessible in this kind yes. of way. Yeah. Most, if you talk to, I don't know, check with your clients. I, I usually ask my clients when they fill out the, their assessment with me, I always say, what's your earliest memory? Some mm-hmm. of them have like memories, like two or three, not many, but there, most people start clicking in around four and a half, yep. five, six. That's where it really comes in. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. Jan, thank you so much. I have gotten so much out of this, and I hope I might my listeners do too. Um, yeah, I, I love this. This is I really enjoy our conversation. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I am in Boston, and you can find me at janbergstrom.com. And then there is a directory that I created of, of professionals that use the post-induction work, which is called HealingTraumaNetwork.net. So that's about 120 people, therapists, professionals that use this work yes. so, and in different parts of the country. So that's another one. And then for therapists that uh, want to learn how to do this, it's at HealingOurCoreIssuesInstitute.com. And we'll include all of those links in our show notes, but yeah. I'm so grateful that you shared them all. They're all such wonderful thank resources. You. Thank you, Jan. So thank you so much for the invitation. I've loved it. Yeah, I have to. I 
wanted to let you know, this February 27th to 29th of 2020, I'll be hosting a trauma healing workshop. This particular workshop will just be for women. It's called Reclaiming Our Power. It's based on the treatment model developed by Pia Melody, originally called Survivors. The workshop will be held in my New Paltz, New York office. It will be facilitated by another of my teachers, Kim Plusard. Kim's on the faculty of both the Relational Life Institute and the Healing Our Core Issues Institute. I'll be assisting Kim in leading the Reclaiming Our Power workshop. It's a three-day intensive workshop. It investigates the origin patterns that cause difficulty in our adult relationships. To register or for more information, send us a message at hello at connectfulness.com. Space is limited. Learn more about my Connectfulness counseling practice, the intensives that I offer, and my collective for therapists and private practice over at connectfulness.com. And listeners often ask how they can support the ongoing production of the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Truly the best way is that you can simply subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcasting platform, and then hop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. This episode is brought to you by Therapy Notes, a simple, secure EHR platform that keeps you organized and creates a container for all the details that run a private practice. Use the promo code CONNECTFULNESS and get two months free when you sign up at therapynotes.com. I want to express my deep gratitude to Sarah and Chris Farris, the musicians behind the beautiful soundtrack for the Connectfulness Practice Podcast, which was recorded and mixed at Kidney Stone Studio. This podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, and copyrighted by Connectfulness Counseling. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events.